Good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to the National Library of Australia. I'm, my name's Martin Woods. I'm the curator of maps and research programs here at the National Library. Um, and whether you are here with us in the theatre or online, welcome. Uh, as we begin, I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet tonight, uh, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples and whose culture we celebrate as one of the oldest continuing cultures in the world. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging uh, for caring for this land on which we work and live. And I'd also like to um, extend my respects to any First Nations peoples here who are joining us this evening. It is my great pleasure to welcome cartographic historian um, and author Chet Van Dusa um, back to the library tonight. Uh, Chet is an independent historian and has published extensively on medieval and renaissance uh, maps. His recent books include Henricus Martellus's World Map at Yale, published by Springer in 2018, and Martin Walsamuller, uh, Carta Mariner of 1516, Transcription of the Long Legends, also published by Springer in 2019. And his current project is a book about cartographic cartouches, those puzzling and decorative emblems on maps which often reveal more about the map and mapmaker than the cartography itself. Chet is a board member of the Lazarus Project at the University of Rochester. That's still true, Chet, yes. Um, the project employs um, a cutting-edge, fully transportable, multispectral imaging laboratory and imaging techniques to recover texts lost for centuries due to damage or deliberate erasure on maps. Its goal is to provide cost-effective access for researchers and institutions to this emerging technology. I was first introduced to Chet in 2015, not long after the close of the library's wonderful Mapping Our World exhibition, which featured many of the world's great medieval renaissance and later cartography. We were in the process of developing a conservation strategy for the library's Blau map of New Holland, and I was pleased to talk about our prized wall map with him then. In 2016, we invited Chet here to discuss his new work on an even older map, a world map by Henricus Martellus in about 1491, which is held by the Beinecke Library at Yale. This large map has long been thought to be one of the most important of the 15th century, but the many texts on the map were illegible due to fading and damage, and thus its exact place in Renaissance um, cartography was impossible to determine. Chet's fascinating presentation took us on a microscopic journey, multi-spectral images revealing previously uh, eligible texts about Asia and Africa derived from even earlier sources. Tonight, however, Chet will share his insights into the early modern belief that a massive and as yet uncharted southern land existed to provide a counterbalance to the continents of the northern hemisphere. This is a journey that many have taken. It is at times a perilous one, um, with almost as many hazards posed to those who have studied it as to those who explored its supposed existence. Um, and on that rather enigmatic note, please join me in welcoming Chet Van Duzer to the podium as he explores dreams of a great southern land. Well, thank you, Martin, for that generous introduction. <clears throat> and thank you all for coming. 
Yes, I, I will in fact be talking about dreams of a great southern land. And I think uh, Australians in particular are uh, cognizant that uh, <clears throat> uh, in, in early modern Europe, people believed that there had to be a southern continent. We're familiar with that idea, but I'll be discussing a, a very peculiar form of that myth, uh, which is that this southern continent, continent was in the shape of a ring of land. So rather than being a large island at the South Pole, it was a ring of land around the South Pole with open water at the pole. Oops. Don't seem able to advance. There we go. Uh, so I'll begin by looking at the early cartographic history of the southern continent. And I'll begin with this text by the Roman <coughs> uh, writer Cicero in his Dream of Scipio. Moreover, you see that this earth is girdled and surrounded by certain belts, as it were, of which two, the most remote from each other, and which rest upon the poles of the heaven at either end, have become rigid with frost, while that one in the middle, which is also the largest, is scorched by the burning heat of the sun. Two are habitable, of these, that one in the south, men standing in which have their feet planted right opposite to yours, has no connection with your race. So this rather complicated text is really saying something very simple, which is that it's cold at the poles, it's very hot at the equator, and in between there are temperate zones which are habitable. The important thing, though, is that he's saying that this obtains in both hemispheres, uh, that there are the, there's a habitable zone in the southern hemisphere as well as the northern hemisphere. So this idea uh, of this uh, zonal uh, configuration of the earth uh, was uh, elaborated by the philosopher Macrobius in his commentary on the dream of Scipio, that is to say his commentary on Cicero's work, which he wrote in the early fifth century. And a number of the manuscripts of Macrobius's commentary on the dream of Scipio are illustrated with maps, such as this one, which is an, an 11th century manuscript in the French National Library. So just to orient ourselves a little bit, uh, we can see the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. And the three uh, classical continents, Europe, Africa, and Asia, are present on the map, although in a very distorted form. So Africa is compressed very much north to south, but there they are. And then we have an equatorial ocean, which occupies a large part of the so-called torrid zone. And then in the south, a southern continent, which is symmetric with the continent in the northern hemisphere, which is to say it has a torrid zone close to the equator, a frigid zone near the pole, and in between a temperate habitable zone. And I can show uh, many different maps from manuscripts of Macrobius's commentary on the dream of Scipio. Uh, here we have another one where perhaps the Mediterranean is depicted a little bit more realistically, while the location of the Red Sea is, um, we can say, interesting. Uh, but again, we have, in some way, the three traditional continents represented, and this huge southern landmass. So this symmetry between the northern hemisphere 
and the southern hemisphere, both in terms of climatic conditions and in terms of land masses. And this idea uh, had a very long trajectory and as we see here, made it into print. So this is a, a map, the, the world map in the 1483 edition of Macrobius' commentary on the dream of Scipio. Uh, so this was not an idea that was uh, put forward and then immediately forgotten. It had a very long tradition. When we move into the 16th century, uh, we find maps such as this one, Francesco Roselli's oval planisphere made in about 1508, where we have a southern continent, uh, but of a very different form. So there's no longer the same attempt at symmetry between the northern and southern land masses, but nonetheless, this idea uh, that there was a substantial land mass uh, far to the south continued uh, as promised at the beginning, I'll, I'll now move in, with, with that background, I'll move into discussing this, uh, what I call the Southern Ring Continent. And I'll begin by looking at its earliest appearance, or at least the earliest appearance that I've found, which is on Johann Schoner's globe of 1515. So here's a portrait of Schoner. Uh, he was a polymath, a astronomer, mathematician, geographer, cartographer and teacher, and uh, was, was quite productive uh, as a cartographer. Uh, his 1515 globe is a printed globe, um, but only survives in sort of two and a half exemplars. Uh, this is the one in Weimar. Um, unfortunately, it's been restored uh, quite heavily and thus is no longer the best representation of Schoener's cartographic ideas. Uh, here is the Frankfurt exemplar of his globe, uh, which is in much better condition, has not suffered restoration, and thus is a good representative of his cartographic ideas. And I said there were two and a half uh, exemplars of his globe. There are also fragments of uh, his globe gores in the Library of Congress. So rotating the Frankfurt exemplar of his globe, uh, here we see the New World, a very uh, early depiction of it. And uh, to the south, we see uh, part of his southern continent. And we zoom in, we see a little bit more of it. And I want to point out that much of Schoner's globe is based on Martin Waldtimiller's famous world map of 1507. That this was the source of most of his geography. Um, but looking at Waldtimiller's world map, we see that there is no southern continent on it. And we might say, well, the, the, the world map doesn't show all the way to the South Pole. So maybe Waldtimiller thought there was a southern continent, but just didn't have space to depict it on this map. But he also made globe gores in the same year, 1507, which do extend all the way to the South Pole, and we do not see a southern continent on those globe gores. So although Schoner was made very heavy use of Waldtimiller's 1507 map in making his 1515 globe, uh, the, the southern ring continent was not something he took from Waldtimiller. So this is something that he brought uh, to the globe. And we can imagine uh, that he was quite excited about making this addition 
to Waldseemuller's cartography. Just to look at the, the South Pole and a few other cartographic objects of the late 15th and early 16th century, uh, here's the South Pole on Martin Beheim's globe of 1492, which is the earliest terrestrial globe uh, that survives. We have very good textual evidence that there were terrestrial globes earlier than Beheim's, but uh, globes are fragile and difficult to store and do not survive well. So this happens to be the earliest one that survives. And we see there is no depiction of a southern continent. This is the Jagiellonian globe of circa 1507, which is at the Jagiellonian University Museum in Krakow. It is a very small globe, uh, about the size of an orange. And as we can see, it's metal. Uh, the hole in it, in it uh, was so that uh, part of the mechanism uh, for a clock could pass through uh, the surface of the globe. And this is an object we'll be returning to later, but for the moment, the important thing is that we don't see any depiction of a southern continent. And this is the Lennox Globe in the New York Public Library, made in about 1510, and in many respects, the sort of sister globe to the Gagalonian Globe, and this is another one we'll return to later. And again, for the moment, the important thing is that it does not uh, include a depiction of a southern continent. So here is the southern continent on Schoenert's globe. So having looked at those other examples, and particularly at Waldseemuller's world map, which was his most important cartographic source, this southern continent is surprising, uh, particularly for its shape as a ring of land around the South Pole. We can see the place name Brasiliae Regio, or the region of Brazil, in the southern continent, which is surprising. You can zoom in a little bit to see that name more clearly. So there was certainly some confusion here on Schoener's part. And Schoener published a pamphlet uh, to accompany his globe, the Luculentissima Quidam Terrae Totius Descriptio. Um, and in, in thinking about where this southern ring continent on his globe might have come from, uh, it makes sense to consult this pamphlet to see what he might say about it. And he has a passage about Brasiliae Regio here, but unfortunately it doesn't really reveal anything about why he gives the southern continent this very strange form. What he says is that the land was discovered by the Portuguese, that it is not distant from the Cape of Good Hope, and that it runs from east to west. And he says that the inhabitants of the land wear untreated animal skins, use bows and arrows, have cassia and unusual birds, and abundant gold and silver. Clearly, he's describing what we know as Brazil. So the location, again, of the place name of Brazil in this southern continent uh, reflects some considerable confusion on his part. And it bears mentioning that there's no other passage in the pamphlet that explains why he gives the southern continent this curious ring shape. So what is the source of Schoener's confusion about the location of Brazil? Why is it that he would place this name in the southern continent? And it comes from uh, this another pamphlet published in 1514, the New Tidings Out of Brazil Land. And this passage 
contains uh, a very confusing passage um, about Brazil and something about a strait uh, connected with Brazil in the far south. And so I'll read that passage, which again is quite confusing. And it, this, the confusing passage is itself the source of uh, Schoener's confusion. So talking about this Portuguese voyage, and when they had arrived in such climate or region, namely around 40 degrees of latitude, that is 40 degrees south, they found Brazil with a cape, which is a point or place extending into the ocean. And they sailed around or passed this very scape, cape <clears throat> and found, the same gulf, found that the same gulf lies as Europe does with the side lying west to east, that is situated between sunrise or east and sunset or west. And this confusing passage continues. Then they saw land on the other side as well when they had sailed a distance of 60 miles along the Cape in the same manner as when one travels toward the east and passes the Strait of Gibraltar and sees the land of the Berbers, which is to say Northern Africa. And when they had come around the Cape as stated and sailed or traveled northwestward towards us, there arose so great a storm and also such a wind that they were unable to sail or travel further. So again, a confusing passage. There's something about southern Brazil, a strait, and a land running to the east and west. And when we look at Schoener's globe, uh, we can see how this passage might have inspired this depiction of a strait at uh, the southern tip of South America with a land running to the east and west, which is to say the southern continent. But that certainly doesn't explain the whole continent. It doesn't explain why it has this ring shape, and it doesn't explain one of the most remarkable features of this continent. Oh, just There is the strait, sorry. It doesn't explain one of the most remarkable features of this continent, which is its hydrography, that is to say, its depiction of lakes and rivers. So we have this enormous lake surrounded by mountains, joined by means of a tremendously long river to another lake surrounded by mountains. And so I think it's reasonable to think that uh, the, the pamphlet about this Portuguese voyage was what suggested to Schoener that there was a strait at the southern tip of South America, but where did the rest of this come from? Granted that one thinks there is a southern continent, granted even that one thinks it has the shape of a ring, why, where did this idea of these two huge lakes and river come from? And it seems a rather uh, dramatic jump, uh, but uh, I'll say a few words about the problem of the flooding of the Nile. So one of the great geographical mysteries of classical antiquity was, why is it that the Nile River floods in the summer, which is precisely when there are no rains? Why is it that the river doesn't flood in the winter? And the flooding of the Nile was a tremendously important event. Uh, Herodotus had said that the, the Egypt is the gift of the Nile. All the fertility, all the agriculture uh, in Egypt was the product of the flooding of the Nile. So this very important event had this great mystery about it. Why is it that it happens in exactly the opposite of the season when it seems that it should happen? And various, I'll show a couple of images of the flooding of the Nile. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have any ancient images, but I have one from uh, 
the 30s and another from 1964, so it really is a very dramatic event. And various theories were put forward, even in classical antiquity, to try and explain why it is that the Nile floods in the opposite of the season when it seems that it should. And one of those theories is from the Roman geographer Pomponius Mela. And Mela says, but if there is another world, meaning a southern continent, and, if, and there are antichthones, uh, which is like antipodians, opposite, across, opposite us across the equator, then even this would not be far removed from the truth that the river has its source in those lands, that is to say in the southern continent, whence it penetrates beneath the seas in a hidden channel, then emerges again in our lands, which is to say in the northern hemisphere, and, is be, and it is for this reason that it swells at the summer solstice because it is then winter at its source. So he's suggesting that the Nile floods in the summer when there are no rains in the northern hemisphere because its source is in the southern hemisphere and it is winter there. And in the 17th century, a map was made that illustrates this theory of Pomponius Mela. Again, this is not at all a map contemporary with Pomponius Mela, much later, 17th century, but it's still useful to consult. So just to orient ourselves, we have Europe, Africa, Asia, and then the southern continent. Here is the Nile. So we see the Nile in Africa as we would more or less expect it, flowing north to the delta on the Mediterranean. And then we have what he says is the source of the Nile in the other world. And he goes so far as to locate the mountains of the moon in the southern continent. So the mountains of the moon are the traditional source of the Nile in Africa. Uh, this idea that the Nile flows from the mountains of the moon goes back to the Greek geographer Claudius Ptolemy. On many Renaissance maps, the mountains of the moon are depicted in Africa. Here they've been moved to the southern continent. So the source of the Nile has been transferred to the southern continent. If we go back to Schoener's globe, we see the mountains of the moon depicted in Africa, where we would expect them. And it's worth pointing out that one of the lakes surrounded by mountains is exactly to the south of the mountains of the moon, which suggests the possibility of a connection between that lake and the mountains of the moon. And it's worth reiterating that Pomponius Mela suggested the Nile has its source in the southern hemisphere and flows through an undersea channel to reach the northern hemisphere. But where does this idea of two lakes surrounded by mountains connected by a river come from? And I suggest that it comes from medieval depictions of the Nile. So here we have the famous Hereford Mundi made in about 1300, one of the largest medieval maps to survive. Uh, I've rotated the map to put north at the top, and I've indicated the Mediterranean and the Red Sea, which uh, is helpfully indicated in red, uh, just to orient ourselves a little bit. So Africa is to the south. Uh, here we see the Nile flowing northward to the Mediterranean, more or less as we might expect. But then we also have this additional branch of the Nile far to the south in Africa, near the southern limit of geographical knowledge at this time, 
that's running between two lakes. And we can see similar depictions of this basically mythical branch of the Nile on other medieval maps. So here's the Sali Mapamundi of circa 1100. And just to orient ourselves, I've, I've put north at the top and I've indicated the three traditional continents. If we look at southern Africa, we see again this mythical branch of the Nile at the southern limit of geographical knowledge that is two lakes joined by an, enormous, an enormously long river. We can see similar depictions uh, in other medieval maps. This is a Mapamundi in a manuscript of Ranulf Higdon's work from the 14th century. And we see this very similar depiction of this branch of a Nile uh, running east and west in southern Africa. This is a detail of the Putinger map uh, made in about 1200. And uh, the map is unusual. It's very, very long and compresses information in the north and south. And as a result, the course of the Nile seems a bit strange. But we see clearly the Nile Delta and the Nile. And then the source of the Nile is a lake surrounded by mountains. And I'll zoom in on that a little bit. Here we see it. And looking at another Mapamundi, this is in uh, the St. Sever manuscript of Beatus of Liebenau's commentary on the Apocalypse, made in the 11th century. Again, I've rotated the map to put north at the top. So here we have the Nile in Africa. And zooming in, again, we have the source of the Nile is a lake surrounded by mountains. And just to look at one more case in which there is a lake surrounded by mountains associated with the Nile, this is an anonymous chart of 1506 or thereabouts. And the, the original map was destroyed. Um, we, we don't have it any longer, but we have this very good facsimile made by Otto Progel. And so here we have the Nile running north to the Mediterranean, as we would expect. And this, again, mythical western branch of the Nile. And zooming in, we can see that we have a lake surrounded by mountains associated with the Nile. So going back to Schoener's globe, uh, what seems to have happened, and again, in his pamphlet, Schoener does not explain this, so this is... Uh, reasoning from the, the cartography of the map, but what seems to have happened is that Schoner accepted Pomponius Mello's theory that the Nile floods in the summer because it has its source in the southern hemisphere. If the Nile has its source in the southern hemisphere, there has to be land there. And then for some reason, he took this mythical western branch of the Nile from medieval maps and plunked that down in this southern landmass, which he had basically invented. So uh, when we talk about dreams of the great southern land, there's a lot of dreaming uh, going on here, a very uh, long string of uh, reasoning in order to come up with this depiction. And then also Schoener was bold enough to paint this hypothesis, to uh, carve this hypothesis on the woodblocks 
for his globe. And the same depiction of the southern ring continent uh, with the same system of lakes and rivers in it uh, appears on the so-called anonymous, the so-called green globe of about 1515, uh, which is anonymous. Uh, here's the south, southern polar regions on that globe. Uh, so here's Africa. And again, we have a lake, one of the lakes surrounded by mountains is immediately south of Africa, again, suggesting a connection between that lake and the Nile River system and the same uh, system of lake, lakes and rivers uh, on that southern continent. So that's one uh, instance of this southern ring continent. And I'll move on now to another, uh, which is from about 15 years after Schoener's globe, on this anonymous world map in the Vatican. So it's in a manuscript of Ptolemy's geography from the 15th century. Uh, originally, there was Ptolemy's map of the world, blank folios, and then his first map of Europe. And this map was painted on those blank folios in about 1530. And we can see that it has another instance of a southern ring continent. So in this case, uh, it's a complete ring, and it's rather more elaborate than Schoner's. So I'll look at it a little bit more closely in four parts, beginning in the west. So we can see that it's dense with place names, uh, which is particularly surprising as the continent itself is labeled by the cartographer Terra Incognita. And in part of that, there are actually six named cities, which seems even further from the idea of Terra Incognita. Moving further to the east, we have this large peninsula jutting northward, but I'll return to shortly. And then the easternmost part of the continent, which again is, is dense with text, despite, and those are place names, and there's a short text about uh, some people who live there, all of this despite the fact that it's not once but twice labeled terra incognita. So, uh, this was actually the map that first got me interested in the history of cartography. Uh, it happened to be on display when I was visiting the Vatican Museums as a tourist, and I was immediately fascinated. Uh, I was familiar with the idea that in the 16th century people thought that there had to be a southern continent, but I had, I had never seen it with this ring shape before, so I wanted to know where that came from, and I also wanted to know where all these place names came from. And so I studied all the place names. And the vast majority of them are either invented, as far as I could tell, or borrowed in a rather cynical way from other parts of the world. But that's not the case with this uh, peninsula that juts to the north. Uh, the, the place names there are actually very interesting. You can see that they are very dense. And surprisingly, they come from Columbus's fourth voyage, uh, which is not something we would expect in the southern Indian Ocean. So here is the route of Columbus's fourth voyage, uh, which took place in 1502 to 1504. Uh, we can see that when he was sailing along the mainland, he was in Central America. Of course, he thought he was in Asia. So 
the fact that place names from his fourth voyage might be located by a cartographer in Asia is not all that surprising. Someone believed, followed Columbus in his belief, but again, the fact that they would be so far to the south is surprising. So if we have a look again at that peninsula and go through the place name, so we have Porto Seguro, the secure port, uh, that in and of itself is not strong evidence of anything, that that's a place name that appears in many places. Rio Belém, uh, both, both of these place names are from um, Columbus's fourth voyage, but neither is really all that distinctive. However, the name Corabaru, Corabaro uh, is not one that one encounters often, and it is from Columbus's fourth voyage. So that's quite strong evidence, I would say. The Mountain of St. Christopher, again, back to a, a name that's not all that distinctive, but does appear in Columbus's account of the fourth voyage. And then this descriptive text that says, in this Gulf Corabaru, worms are born which bore through ships. So these are shipworms. And Columbus did indeed have severe problems with shipworms on his fourth voyage. He actually had to abandon one of his ships because of damage from shipworms. And then finally, the River of the Pine in the north. And again, not a very distinctive name, but it does appear in Columbus's fourth voyage. And taken all together, uh, these, all of these names that do come from Columbus's fourth voyage, I think taken together, are very strong evidence uh, that someone thought that this is the area that Columbus, is, Columbus was exploring uh, in his fourth voyage. So again, just to show the location of that peninsula, very far to the south in the Indian Ocean, actually south of the tropic. So as I said before, it's not terribly surprising uh, that someone would place uh, toponyms from Columbus's fourth voyage in, in, in Asia, and in fact, Roselli does so on his world map of 1508. On the, the eastern coast of Asia that is circled there, there are place names from Columbus's fourth voyage. Again, the problem is, how did they end up being so very far to the south in this anonymous Vatican map? I'll return now to the Jagiellonian globe that I mentioned earlier. Uh, again, it's made of metal, very small in the Jagiellonian University Museum. We see here a fairly standard depiction of South America in the early 16th century. If we rotate the globe to the Indian Ocean, again, the, the, the contrast here is, is not great. Uh, these are the best images of the globe that there are. But we have this very large island in the southern Indian Ocean, uh, which is in the same position and has essentially the same orientation as that peninsula on the Vatican map. And it has text on it, and the text says, America Novator Reperta, America Newly Discovered. So bizarrely, this globe has America twice. It has South America and then the island of America in the southern Indian Ocean. But the important thing for us here is that this island that is labeled America is in the same location with the same orientation as this peninsula on the Vatican map in the southern Indian Ocean. And just a detail to show the inscription America Novata Reperta along the, the northern coast of the island. <clears throat> 
And so we have this large island labeled America and this peninsula jutting down from Southeast Asia towards it, which is something very similar to what we have on the Vatican map. And then we'll look at one other globe, the Hunt-Lennox globe I mentioned before at the New York Public Library. Again, we have a fairly standard depiction of South America for the early 16th century, if, if there is such a thing. And rotating to the Indian Ocean, we again have this large island in the southern Indian Ocean, in this case not labeled America, but in the same position and with the same large peninsula jutting southward to meet it. And this mythical island appears on other maps, such as Pietro Coppo's map of 1524. So just to orient ourselves, here's South America, Africa, and this large island in the same location, not labeled America. But going back to the Jagiellonian globe and comparing with what we have on the Vatican map, on the globe, on the bottom, we have this island labeled America. And at the top, on the Vatican map, we have this peninsula with place names from Columbus's fourth voyage, which is to say place names that belong in Central America. So the, the presence of these place names from Columbus's fourth voyage on this peninsula, on the Vatican map, as surprising as it seems at first, well, there were other people who thought something similar, who were locating America in the same spot. And in both cases, both the island and the peninsula jut northward just about to the tropics. So they're, again, they're in the same location. So how did this island representing the New World end up in the southern Indian Ocean, uh, south of the tropic? The answer is to be found in another pamphlet, uh, which is that printed to accompany Martin Waldseemuller's world map of 1507, the Cosmographiae Introductio, or Introduction to Cosmography. And in the very passage, so this, again, the map is famous for being the first to apply the name America to the New World. And in the very passage where he introduces us to the name America, he, it, there's text that gives us the answer to this question of how this land ended up being represented so far to the south. He says, in the sixth climate toward the Antarctic are located the farthest part of Africa, recently discovered, the islands of Zanzibar, the lesser Java, and Sula, and the fourth part of the earth, which, because Amerigo discovered it, we may call Amer called Amerige, the land of Amerigo, so to speak, or America. So when he gives us the name America, he tells us it's very far to the south in the sixth climate towards the Antarctic. So this is why uh, the, this island and peninsula, which are associated with the New World, are located so far to the south. Again, there is that peninsula. So moving on to another instance of this southern ring continent on Michel Tramezzino's map of 1554. So more, more dreams of the Southland. So this is a world map in two hemispheres. And here we have uh, the hemisphere showing us Africa, Europe, and much of Asia. So the Eastern hemisphere. And we can see there is a ring of land around the South Pole. 
And here is the other hemisphere uh, of Tremetsino's 1554 map. And again, we have this ring of land. In this case, we're, we're back to something more similar to what we had with Schoener, which is to say an incomplete ring. And the question is, why is this ring incomplete? And I want to suggest that the configuration of the world on Tramezzino's map has to do with an idea about the flow of water. And Macrobius talks about a flow of water uh, between the poles. And we can see that there is open water at the poles on his map, on, not on all Macrobian maps, not all the maps follow the text as closely as they might, but on a, a large number of them, there's open water at the poles, which is what we have when there's a southern ring continent. And Macrobius talks about this flow of water between the poles. And another author who talks about a flow of water between the poles is Roger Bacon in the 13th century, the English philosopher, in his Opus Maius. And Bacon went so far as to make this diagram, this very curious diagram. Uh, and so he labels South Pole and the North Pole. And the beginning of India and the beginning of Spain, and I'll reorient this diagram to make it a little bit easier to understand. So what he's talking about is a flow of water between the poles that takes place between India, which is to say Asia, and Europe. And this, of course, was before the discovery of the New World. So uh, there was no knowledge of a, a continent that might interfere with that flow. But so both Macrobius and Roger Bacon talk about this flow of water between poles. And if we look at Tramezzino's map, it seems remarkably well designed to facilitate just such a flow. Uh, and in fact, the, the absence of a significantly sized Japan is particularly telling. Uh, it leaves this strait uh, between Asia and North America and then just to the south of that strait, we have this opening into uh, the ocean at the, southern, at the South Pole. So it seems that uh, this map is reflecting those same ideas, uh, Roger Bacon's ideas about this flow of water between the North and South Poles. Unfortunately, we don't have any writings associated with this map that would confirm that, but it's actually confirmed by the cartography of the globe itself. The projection uh, of the map, I'm sorry, the projection of the map is precisely the projection recommended by Roger Bacon with straight and equidistant lines parallels. Uh, so again, accumulating evidence to try and, try and draw a conclusion. If, if it weren't the case that the projection was precisely that recommended by Roger Bacon, we might doubt whether there was a connection between this interesting strait between the two poles and Roger Bacon's ideas. But given that Tramazzino is using precisely the projection recommended by Bacon, it seems possible to conclude with some certainty that that is what's being depicted here, that the cartographer is imagining that the world was configured so as to facilitate this flow of water between the poles. And we'll look at one final example of this southern ring continent, continent on Urbano Monti's manuscript world map of 1587, which we see here. So Urbano Monti was a nobleman in Milan, 
and uh, this map was recently acquired by Stanford University. The format in which they acquired it was an atlas, so the, the map consists of 60 separate sheets that were designed to be assembled into a wall map, and Stanford has done that digitally. They scanned the 60 sheets, cropped them digitally, and brought them together to form this world map, um, which is a really remarkable object. It's about three meters in diameter, and thus one of the largest non-mural world maps to survive from the Renaissance. So just to orient ourselves, here's North America, South America, Africa, Asia, and the map is centered on the North Pole, so it's a North Polar projection. And in fact, the map was designed to rotate about the North Pole. So if you think about a map three meters in diameter, if it were on the wall, you wouldn't be able to see the upper parts. And Monte realized that, and so designed the map to be able to rotate, to be able to bring the parts that were at the top down within view. We have the Arctic Circle, the equator, and then this remarkable southern continent. Again, a ring of land around the South Pole. Its size wildly exaggerated uh, by the North Polar projection, as we're familiar with uh, happening to the northern land masses in the Mercator projection. And just to indicate a few other characteristics of the map, uh, as it were, in the Southern Ocean, at the, the southern edge of the map, uh, we have portraits of kings. And in each of those triangles are descriptive texts applying to various parts of the world uh, in the north. Uh, somewhat annoyingly, uh, none of them describes the southern continent. Uh, and Monte uh, authored a geographical treatise that accompanies this map in one manuscript. It's a very long treatise, but he does not explain why he thought that the southern continent had this configuration. So again, we're left to try and deduce what we can about the sources of this idea. So again, here is the southern continent in its eight islands. So where did he, might he have gotten the idea that this ring of land consists of eight islands? Well, I would suggest that it comes from an idea of symmetry. And we've seen this idea of symmetry before in macrobian maps. So if there is a northern landmass, there must be a southern landmass, and the, the climatic conditions are symmetric in them. So at the North Pole, Urbanamonte has four islands forming a ring of land around the North Pole with these um, straits separating the islands. And this depiction of the North Pole uh, is not something that Monty invented at all. Uh, it actually has a long tradition. Uh, we see the same depiction of the North Polar regions on Gerard Mercator's inset map of the North Polar regions on his famous world map of 1569, where uh, he says that the, the, the mountain at the center is a huge mountain of magnetic stone, and that's why compasses point to the north, because there's that huge mass of magnetic stone there, and that the world's oceans flow inward towards the pole in these four straits between these four islands. The important thing is that this idea that there were four islands forming a ring of land around the North Pole 
had a long history, uh, and it goes back much further than Mercator. It also appears on Martin Beheim's Globe of 1492, and it goes back to a lost book called the Fortuna and uh, Fortunata, uh, Inventio Fortunata, rather, uh, which was written in the 14th century but no longer survives. So again, what seems to have happened on Urbano Monte's map is that he saw, he was familiar with this theory that there were four islands forming a ring of land around the North Pole, and inspired by ideas of symmetry, he deduced that there were islands forming a ring of land around the South Pole. So, to conclude, I think it's remarkable uh, that these four cases of this very similar idea that there was a ring of land around the South Pole seem to have so little connection between them. Uh, in each case, the explanation seems to be different. So on Schoner's globe of 1515, it had to do with the question of why is it that the Nile floods in the summer? On the Vatican map, uh, we really don't know where the idea of the whole ring came from, but part of it came from this idea that Columbus, the lands Columbus discovered on his fourth voyage were in the far south of the Indian Ocean, which we saw here, and also on the Jagiellonian globe. On the map by Tramezzino from 1554, uh, the southern ring continent is, I think, pretty clearly motivated by Roger Bacon's idea of, of open water at the poles and a flow of water between the poles. Uh, so that's where, I mean, the, the southern ring continent allows there to be open water at the South Pole and also with its break facilitates, as it were, the flow of water between the poles, which you see here. And then finally with Urbano Monte, uh, we have an entirely different source for this ring of land around the South Poles, around the South Pole, which is one of symmetry <clears throat> between the northern and southern polar regions. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chet, for that uh, very illuminating um, exposition on the ring continent and the ideas that uh, uh, lie behind it. I find it amazing that even after the um, erasure of uh, Columbus place names that the ideas were still fighting, the, um, the threads were still mm. competing around this idea when in fact the whole basis for one of them, or for all of them perhaps, um, was gotten rid of. But yeah. nonetheless, uh, it's a tribute to the tenacity of those ideas that uh, it continued uh, until the, into the midi middle of the 16th century. Uh, and um, what, was it, what would you say is the longest lived of those ideas? Uh, with regard to Columbus's? No, with regard to the four threads, which one persisted ah. the longest, would you say? Hmm. Uh, the, the idea that there were these four islands around the North Pole persisted for quite a while. Uh, the others all went by the wayside very quickly. 